where does liberalism lead us? For a philosophy that seeks to allow us the choice in how we pursue our own interests, some argue it leaves us unmoored or adrift. But what do anyone's guiding values or higher principles aim for? That and much more today on the Liberty Exchange. Welcome to the Liberty Exchange. My name is Jonathan Fortier, and my guest today is Dan Klein. Dan is professor of economics and JIN chair at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he leads a program based on the work of Adam Smith. His most recent book is titled Central Notions of Smithian Liberalism. Klein is the editor of Econ Journal Watch and holds degrees from George Mason and New York University. In my conversation with Dan, we explore the relationship between classical liberalism and what Dan refers to as the higher things. For the purposes of this conversation, Dan and I use the terms classical liberalism, CL, and libertarianism interchangeably. By higher things, we mean, in part, those themes, ideas, topics, practices, sentiments that are aspirational and aimed at the good and the transcendent. The higher things are to be distinguished from concerns that are merely utilitarian, expedient, or reductively materialist. Our discussion is wide-ranging and explores the idea of transcendence of the divine or different ways of expressing divinity, as well as related themes such as joy, beauty, community, the afterlife, the immortality of the soul, and virtues such as benevolence, industriousness, and friendship, to name a few. In these days of political tension, it's become common for people to slap the word religion on their adversaries meant disparagingly as a criticism. For example, John McWhorter's 2021 book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America, offers a critique of woke ideology by reference to its religious characteristics. Similarly, Michael Schellenberger, in an essay called Why Wokeism is a Religion, writes, There is no obviously mythological or supernatural element to woke ideology, and its adherents rarely, if ever, justify their statements with reference to a god or higher power. But a deeper look at wokeism does indeed reveal a whole series of mythological and supernatural beliefs. Here again, Schellenberger suggests that the religious tenor of these beliefs somehow compromises their integrity or persuasiveness as coherent sets of ideas. Dan Klein wants to interrogate these assumptions and thinks that religion is often, perhaps inescapably, imported into our political theorizing. Dan suggests that political ideologies may not be religions as such, but quasi-religions. Dan applies the term to his political adversaries, but also applies it to classical liberals like himself. So, Dan, thanks for coming on the Liberty Exchange. Tell us what you mean. What do you mean when you say that classical liberalism is a quasi-religion? Thanks for having me, John. Um, I don't know, quasi or quasi? I say quasi. You say quasi? Okay. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> um I do think that political outlook, political ideology resembles religion in significant ways. And let me mention two broad ways that I'll talk about. One is what I will call the higher things, the higher things in a person's life, the sacred things. And I want to get to that. The other is our, that our ideas are ethical beliefs and sensibilities, I think naturally form themselves around the notion of a superhuman beholder of the whole, or in other words, a being like God, if not God. But this connection, these connections are not necessarily complete or perfect. I say not necessarily because, of course, someone's classical liberalism could be integrated with their theistic views. I mean, it could be a part of their religion. And so that's fine. Um, but I'm saying even if you're not, you don't think of yourself a theist, or if you don't think that your theism implies your classical liberalism, I still think your classical liberalism is what we're calling a, a quasi-religion. I would reserve the word religion for a system of belief centered on God. And Schell the Schellenberger quote kind of pointed this out, like they don't actually identify a God and refer to a God. And so, and here, you know, I'm, I mean God in a full sense of the term. So religion to me is God in a rather full sense of the term. I think political outlooks resemble religion, but they don't necessarily have God in that full sense, uh, like wokeism doesn't, generally doesn't. But I would say they're quasi-religions. And so 
there's a sort of sense of a, a full sense of God I'd like to talk about. It's kind of the full kit. So if you see what the full kit is, you can then see what is not necessary for you know where I am. And I'm an agnostic, by the way. So I don't consider myself a theist. I don't consider myself an atheist either. And I'd be glad to find out that there's a God as advertised. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful and sublime set of ideas that I pattern ethical thought and understanding after. So believe me, I'm very like pro religion. I'm very, I'm very anti anti religion. Right. So anyway, what is this full kit? I'll go into that. I'm going to mention four: divine providence, stuff about the afterlife, universal benevolence, and super knowledge. Some people might say omniscience. Those are four things that are, I think, central in the full full kit. And I don't think they're all like crucial to me, but some of them are crucial to me. And so the first one, divine providence, that's God's creation of the universe, including us as creatures of God, Imago Dei, that I do not see as a necessary feature to kind of like my political outlook. Um, I think it's a beautiful idea and it fits with some with the ones that are, I think, important, like the benevolence, actually, the universal benevolence. It fit, it's a very nice fit with that because if you know, you might say, well, why is God universally benevolent towards us? Well, that's because he created us. So it's almost like a parent-child, and there's a natural benevolence that fits. And so if you're going to raise a child to, to pattern ethical thought in this way, it's a nice story. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a good way to put it together. It's a great way to put it together. So I think it's a beautiful idea, but strictly speaking, I don't need divine providence. Another thing is the afterlife and perhaps further that justice in some full sense is completed, divine justice in the afterlife, the sense of the immortality of the soul. I really like the idea with the soul. I use it, but I don't, I, I myself am not banking on it. I'm going to, as Woody Allen says, I'm going to bring an extra pair of underwear just in case. <laughs> but again, well, I think that ideas of eternity are key to in our ethical thought, kind of like the idea that our actions ring in et eternity, that we have, a, have to have a responsibility that like thinks like that. I don't actually think that literal afterlife and immortality of the soul is necessary for quasi-religion that I am advancing here. But the next are the more essential aspects, and these do now very much relate to this idea of a higher things space or sacred beliefs. And so the next one is this universal benevolence. We've got a, a beholder who's universally benevolent towards the whole, and that's quite a platitude, but it's not like we have no sense of what it would mean. I mean, death and destruction and disease are obviously are not advancing it. Poverty and conflict and hatred and bitterness and hopelessness are obviously not advancing it. But it is a platitude. And part of our philosophy, and I don't mean classical liberals, I mean human beings generally, is this idea of benevolence and what, what, what would God find beautiful? What would a universally benevolent being find beautiful? And, you know, benevolent has bene in there. That's good, right, in Latin. And so it's about what is good. And, and not just we each have our own goods and senses of good, but we also have to think about what a benevolently, a universally benevolent being would find beautiful. And then the super knowledge, that kind of goes with it, that it's not a human knowledge. It's a super knowledge. I don't like the word omniscience just because I find it kind of self-contradictory and difficult. So I just avoid it. But you can kind of think like way, way, way more than knowledge than we have. Kind of like God's always over your shoulder and God sees all this stuff and not only has this detailed local knowledge, but has sort of a very wise, high system knowledge, if you like, or understanding. And so again, you have to think about what do I think aligns with what a super knowledgeable, benevolent being finds beautiful? And in this kind of God, these notions of that I just said about God, you can kind of do these subpoints about God's presence and sentiment being felt. That's kind of like 4A, if you will. And that's maybe what theists will say, hey, Klein, you're, we haven't heard you get to the real thing, which is God's reality. 
<laughs> and this is where God's reality comes in for a of God's actual felt presence in our sentiment. Like we somehow feel that God is approving or disapproving, not because it's part of our cultural system that's been built around religion, and I think along religious lines, but because God is actually a force in in the universe that way. Um, in a, in a, I guess you could say somewhat physical sense or, or, or some sense, some kind of verses 4b, which is my, you know, God light tendency, God's presence and sentiment are, are not felt or experienced, but are nonetheless supposed to exist as at least conceptually, at least conceptually as like a worthy organizing idea and really fundamentally organizing idea in our life's journey. And so you hear, you know, you could say, you know, actually we're just these animals and I don't know, don't ask me where the world came from and all that. Um, and we, we've developed these cultures uh, and religions and these are beautiful ideas that pay off big time, in my view, big gods, I think pay off big time. There's a whole literature about big gods being, you know, more and more cooperation under the benevolent God. The bigger the God, the more, <laughs> the bigger division of labor and trust throughout God's creatures. So there's a lot to be said for it. And specifically, I buy the seed and top hypothesis that Christianity made, relig made classical liberalism possible. That's a more specific controversial claim that is not necessary to what I'm saying today, but I, I do happen to also think that. But so let me just say, I think it's good to have this idea of this benevolent beholder, super knowledgeable, and we try to think about what actually advances that good. First of all, like what constitutes that good? Not that we work out some clear algorithm or picture of it at all, but some sense of what social good is, and then, of course, what advances it. And that means studying how things work. That means learning, as it were, the book of nature. And so this gets us into the higher things in one's life um, because these are big objects that we think about and then make our think of ourselves as belonging to and serving. In fact, I like the idea of this service and or subservice or however you want to put it. Um, and it begins, of course, where we have the most knowledge and effectiveness because we can control our own actions and we have relational knowledge to be effective. And that means it begins with the family and friends, and but it moves out, just as Burke said with his little platoons passage, um, to you know the whole of humankind, um, including even future generations. So more sublime things, things that can inspire awe. So why is it like religion? It gets into the higher things. It does get into the higher things, and it's not neutral about them. CL, classical liberalism. And we can say more about that, but I'm going to give you a chance. And there's a, there's a God-light notion. I think it's good to actually intellectually see that there's a God-light notion that helps to organize our thoughts about ethics generally. Yeah. Uh, that is a lot to chew on, Dan. So um, just to, as a, as a uh, mid-conversation recap here for our listeners, just to emphasize, you are not using quasi-religion as a type of disparagement in the way that Schellenberger is indicting wokeism. You are saying that quasi-religion helps us better understand classical liberalism and indeed perhaps many different political systems of thought um, and that there is in order to to fit your model or um, your understanding of how you're using quasi-religion you have a sort of a limited understanding or a limited interpretation of how god is conceived of and operates in this model and that is that god is benevolent and that his presence is felt or at least inferred in some way. Inferred is a good way to put it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and yeah. by the way, I, I have kind of a name for the God light being joy. Right. I think that's useful to have a name just like we have the word God 
And yeah, what I'm saying is I'm not so interested in like fighting joy against God. I'm kind of like promoting them together. And that's the main message. Um, and Michael Schellenberger, in a way, has God or joy, I'm, I'm suggesting. Uh, John McWhorter, in a sense, has God or joy going on in his, whether he kind of is conscious of it or not, is, 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 is what I'm suggesting. And that it's good to be conscious of it. Right, right. You should embrace it. Sure. You were going to outline some of your thinking about the higher things, and that would be really helpful. Maybe I'll just make a few observations and you can use them as a point of departure or not. I mean, one of the claims about libertarians and classical liberals is that they precisely do not provide a set of of values for some of the higher things that people should be pursuing. So it's not a totalizing vision of how people should be living their lives. In fact, it's quite a, a, a minimalist vision, um, simple rules for a complex world, in other words. And so people are left to their own devices to pursue their own life projects. And so there's nothing inherent in CL thought and classical liberalism to point people towards a certain direction, spiritually or religiously, or even necessarily to any higher thing. But you are saying that there are embedded in the classical liberal framework implicitly some higher things, some assumptions of higher things that are taken as a matter of course, that are kind of essential to the worldview. Is that- Yes given? and no. Okay. This is, this is um, the way I think about it. It's, it's kind of two-pronged to, to respond to what you're asking about. One prong is that I think a main feature of CL as a quasi-religion speaking to the higher things, I think the main thing it says, or like the most conspicuous thing it says, is, okay, you got the higher thing space, these things that mean something important to you, that you identify with, you know, that you, find, you kind of make sacred. In your personal life, I'm not saying like religiously sacred and theistically sacred, but in the John Height sense of sacred beliefs. And CL is saying in this whole wide space that, you know, different human authors and influences offer to you, don't go over there. <laughs> now, where is over there? Over there is philosophies that spell the governmentalization of social affairs. CLs like strongly believe that the governmentalization of social affairs like doesn't work well, generally speaking. It's not like we can't have any government or there aren't exceptions, but by and large, it's bad and it's way oversold. And not only do people think otherwise, but they actually, I think, often develop thoughts that, that spell that, that they make sacred that they make a kind of quasi-religion, which is exactly what McWhorter and Schellingberger are saying. And that Tocqueville said about collectivist things in democracy in America, that's his big warning about a kind of political quasi-religion displacing real religion. Because he said a spirit of religion and a spirit of liberty depend on each other. And I'm, I'm along that line, but I'm just kind of turning it into a spirit of quasi-religion. Or or religion, like either or, but you need some such spirit. So the main thing that CL is saying about the higher thing space, I would say, is don't go over there. Like Marx and Rousseau and a lot of people we could name are saying, do come over here, come join us, right? So that is a non-neutral statement about the higher things space, right? So the so you know it's just not true that liberal classical liberalism is just neutral about the sacred things or the higher things. So that's a big thing. And then but then the question is okay, don't go over there. That leaves all this area that's not cordoned off. And you're saying that okay, that's fine, you know, life liberty pursuit of happiness. Go pursue your happiness over there. Is CL saying anything in that open space? And that's that's a big and difficult question. Um, and you know, I'm one CL, you're one CL who has ideas about that. And I don't think it's something to be pinned down, but I'm sure there's some common guidance, I guess you could say, in this open space. And I, I, I have some points that I could, be, you know, suggest. But um, 
do you want to react at all at this point? No, I think it's important to parse that we're talking about the higher things across in some different senses, I think, or different contexts or modalities. Uh, so in one sense, you're saying that um, the higher things can be embodied in a turn to government, for example, as a solution to certain problems. Um, and you you think of that as a higher thing and, and from what perspective or for what reasons? Why is a turn to government a higher thing? Because it's a it appeals to government as a uh, solution for a multiple variety of problems or? Well, there's the issue of why would I say that to that person, that is there a higher thing to that person? And that would be because they're really, really concerned about it and focus a lot of attention and emotion and activity perhaps, and perhaps resources to it. They follow it closely. They feel strongly about it. It's on their mind a lot. They watch a lot of MSNBC or whatever the case may be. I mean, I'm a kind of junkie that way too. It's just that I'm not watching that channel. I mean, I don't want, you know, who watches TV anymore, but um, we all watch, I watch a lot of YouTube and so on. But so it's part of their meaning. It's part of their identification. It's their, their associations, their affiliations, their friendship networks, and so on and so forth. And their ways of thinking, their ways of un making sense of the world. So in as much as all those things are seem to be important to that person, really important, like you can't point to something else that seems clearly as important, perhaps, higher thing. On this higher thing idea, let me bring in this... Um, building and chimney metaphor, because higher is with respect to the person who, you know, we're talking about. And I, if you think that, suppose every building has a chimney on it, okay, just for simplicity. So for each building, the chimney is the higher thing, but that doesn't mean that all chimneys are equally high. Right, not all buildings are equally high, or perhaps we could also get into whether they're straight or crooked or something. But so, so you know, everybody has higher things in the sense that in this world, I'm suggesting every building has a chimney. But you, we still make judgments about which chimneys are higher, or which houses are straight or crooked, or something along those lines. And we should. That's part of our responsibility. So, so higher things doesn't necessarily like you might not find it that high their sense of what's high or sacred. So just, just to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, I understand. And so the other domain of higher things then uh, concerns this, what you referred to just now is this open space, this yeah. open domain. And I think that it's often this domain that uh, where people launch their criticism of, of CL thought or libertarian thought in that libertarianism provides no clue as to what the higher things should be on purpose, because we all have a different idea of the higher things. So uh, I'll let you perhaps talk a little bit about, about that domain and, and how we think of the higher things. Yeah, in that, that's in that a really tricky thing. It's a very subtle thing. A big part of it is that n none of us, like I'm thinking of myself now as a libertarian, want to give some pretend to be able to have to offer philosophy of life for whoever out there is listening to me maybe if i was talking to somebody individually who i really had a friendship with and i knew about their life it would be very different but broad based were so different situations you know characters circumstances etc cetera, etc cetera. um so I think there's a lot to be said for that, and I wouldn't want to like say that we ought to be putting forward some even very rough picture of a good life, the good, the good life, the good life, like in your own way, do it, do basically this. But but I do think that I I do think that it, there are some broad things that I would personally want to project to a wider audience, and I think it's really important that libertarianism, classical liberalism, does have people who project. So kind of some sense of that. What would some of those things be? Well, some kind of integrity, hard work, seriousness about doing your part to advance the good of the whole. Um, you know, taking the idea of the good of the whole seriously, taking the idea of having to advance it seriously, and and then like figuring out that. So hard, hard work and activity, kind of some some sense of upward vitality. 
I think is crucial. Um, industriousness, not just hands off, you know, leaving people alone and tolerating everything. Um, I, you know, for example, you know, I, I, I think that families and important uh, friendships you know i mean we we are constituted as individual organisms you know humankind is constituted as individual organisms and we each have this special knowledge and control over our person and we interact with people adam smith talked about it kind of this outward the further we get from ourselves our families our friendship circles our neighborhood the less we know and are effective it's about treating people well, therefore, it's about taking virtue seriously. Um, and now, what does that mean? I know that that's like platitudinous, uh, but it's it can be approached, it can be discussed, it can be taken seriously. I mentioned Adam Smith, and, and let me just throw in here that his impartial spectator can be interpreted as God, and it can be interpreted as joy. I think he made it flexible that way, versatile that way quite consciously, I think. Um, whether he himself was a theist, I think, is still quite mysterious. So anyway, you know, so what to do in that upper space? I don't know. You know, for you and I, John, we're kind of professional classical liberals. So, you know, if someone's a professional classical liberal, I, it's different than just saying, well, you should, you should be a classical liberal, but, you know, you're not a professional classical liberal. You're, you're whatever you are. And, and, that you know so i don't know <laughs> and you know your lifestyle could be different and everything else um you know uh, so I, I it's it it's it is difficult it's a pickle for sure yeah yeah how do you think advancing a theory of cl as quasi religion helps us refine our understanding of classical liberalism does it help us avoid a, a certain kind of foundationalism or a certain kind of excessive rationalism in the way that Hayek was kind you know trying to, to warn us about um, or or does it do does it accomplish something different with regards to our tradition and our theories I think it does do those things which I think are good things to do um, but I think I think it's like even it's larger, but it is diffuse. I mean, it's a very great question. Like, why should we think along? Why should we be listening to you, Klein? Why should we think along these lines at all, or to take on board any of your your terminology? Those are great questions, and I don't think that there's some really pointed knockdown uh, payoff to to um, to tell of. But I do I do think that our sensibilities are classical liberal sensibilities are more of sort of an aesthetic outlook and a kind of commitment to certain, again, good, what, what is good. And it's not something that is self-justifying or is justified by some self-evident truths, some self-evident axioms. I don't think that's a proper way to think about um, all of this. And you're right that certain people in... Um, the CL libertarian tradition have been more of that axiomatic kind of rationalist approach. That's not to say that something, you know, you might call reason doesn't, isn't super important and stuff, but reason itself I see is a much richer term with different meanings than people acknowledge. Uh, this kind of gets us to Hume. <laughs> yes. Who had, who had this kind of polysemous approach to reason. And in fact, you know, he's famous. People love to quote him in the, from the treatise saying that there's this conflict between reason and passion. But even in the treatise, and then especially subsequently, he says that reason is a calm passion. So he says reason in, in another sense is a passion. Um, I'm just saying that reason is not just a matter of kind of straightforward fact and strict logic. It's more than that. It's much more than that in these other richer senses. It's it's that narrow sense where he said this drives us, this leads us nowhere, and that's where he has his crisis, as it were, at the end of book one of the treatise, and and he says, "What do I believe in?" And he finds out, well, I believe that. He's not going to say that God exists. He expresses his doubts about that. But he says, look, I believe backgammon exists. <laughs> and I'm not going to quarrel with that. I'm just going to go forward. I'm going to, to some extent, find the world and the facts as they are. And I'm making judgments. I'm making 
reactions to my own sensibilities, my experiences of the world about what is important, you know, what's worthwhile. And I don't have fact and strict logic to establish those things. I don't have strict logic to establish what's good and beautiful for humankind. You know, some sense of political cohesion and identity and and uh, an experience, shared experience, encompassing experience. I think that's in our genes. Right. So to just, you know, say, well, that's just all irrational. Like that's, none of that's legitimate. So I don't have to answer that. You make a judgment there about how big a role that kind of thing should have in the good. And I think people vastly, you know, overindulge in a lot of these things, which I think are atavistically in us. I say atavistically because they're overindulging. They're, they're, they're letting these instincts operate too much because the times have changed. So besides guiding us away from some of this rationalism, what I would sort of call wrong sense of how our ideas are organized, I do think that there's a lot in the pattern of religious thought that is just really worth taking on board and that I feel you can do even while being an agnostic or even if you like an atheist. I mean, that's fine too. I guess, you know, one of the biggies is is t trying to take seriously Imago Dei, the idea that we're creatures of God, that we're dignified, everybody is, we're all creatures of God aspiring to be his children, as C.S. Lewis would put it, um, by learning virtue and just approaching, you know, this upward vitality. And and that's just is a it's a lovely, rich, rewarding way of thinking about human anthropology, if you like. Um, and so even if you don't believe that, you know, God created nature, nature creates God. <laughs> and, and it's not just a phase. I don't think like we can put that behind us now because we're so clever. I really think it's good to take on board a lot of these religious patterns of thought and not be at war with even religious conviction, theistic conviction. Um, it, it, it's in some sense healthy. Uh, I think. I do think that this God-imbued sense of the world, a beholder of the world anyway, God-joy-imbued, does, I think, lend itself to a kind of love of life, life as a blessing, a sense of gratitude, even though it's, if you don't have divine providence, it's not truly a gratitude situation because it's not like someone actually gave me existence. But if, you, if you're a theist, you think that. So you have someone who was, you know, generous to you that you feel gratitude toward, but still you want to simulate great, maybe we can call it gratefulness, if not gratitude, for example. But I think that's a good thing to feel a, a sense of the larger, the sublime. Smith, in fact, spoke of the devout and contemplative virtues. So I think all of this helps foster that. I think it makes taking virtue more seriously. Okay, if we think along these lines, how do I do my part? What's my responsibility? And it makes you think maybe more seriously about conscience, what your conscience is, how your conscience speaks to you, whether your conscience itself is developing and upward, that kind of dynamic, which, which you can read about in Smith. He said that the conscience is a representative of God joy the higher, the impartial spectator in the highest sense. And so that's not to say that your conscience is a good representative, but a representative. And it's, it's your way to God joy, to a sense of what aligns with God joy. There's no other way. You got to go through your conscience. So that's, I think, an important idea. Just on this note, yeah. Dan, do you think that the impartial spectator is intended to orient our conscience to the higher things is that the idea is that we we yeah have a in a sense um it provides an imaginary objective perspective on us towards which we can aspire or model ourselves yes yeah. yes it's a sense of would god joy approve if you want to get all ian mcgillcresty it's very right hemisphere actually, mm -hmm. but that's a whole nother matter. Right. <laughs> so this whole classical liberalism as a quasi-religion, I think 
lends itself to thinking more seriously about all these sorts of things. It, it, it goes against some of the rationalist tendencies, including some of the Mises, Rothbard things in Austrian economics against social aggregation, against any kind of animism. Hayek was of two minds about this. These people end up talking out of both sides of their mouths very often. But I do think we believe in spirits, animisms. Uh, animisms are worthwhile allegories, and we need to make them better rather than worse, liberal rather than anti-liberal. And so we have to be more along those lines. And finally, what else is it good for? I think it helps us understand better the people we're trying to persuade, the people we're disagreeing with. I think that Schellenberger and McWhorter are, are definitely onto something in talking about wokeism, for example as a religion, but I would say quasi-religion, because it helps us to see what they're sacralizing, how they're thinking, what's moving them, and why this is meaningful to them, just to understand what's driving it. And here again, I do think that the um, evolutionary take, Hayek's evolutionary take about the two worlds that we haven't changed that much in 10,000 years genetically, our ancestors were living in small bands, and and this certain political ideas appeal to this. I would even say pander to it. Right, right. Just on that note, Dan, because I think yeah. that's really productive. So would you say that using Hayek, certain current ideological movements, wokeism, for lack of a another example, appeal to community or equality or band cohesiveness as the sacralizing yeah, even if it's Teams. quite inchoate or subconscious or something, it's like a very strong penchant bent mentality from our past, as it were. And even if it's not all spelled out, it just seems to be a mo you know an impetus of some kind to me. I just don't know what else to say, um, how else to explain why people think these things. <laughs> So I find this quite persuasive. There's a lot of different sides to this hypothesis, which create a kind of consilience for me in understanding what's going on. So would you say that libertarians sacralize values or ideas like liberty or autonomy or individualism? Are those the values that would come into our orbit as the higher things? Yeah, I think... I think there's definitely a lot to that. These logos, as Jordan Peterson might say, do become central, important, kind of sacralized terms and concepts for us. And that I think that's fine. I mean, but, but there are limits you want to go and you want to understand all the, these difficulties and nuances. The whole project of liberty has always been filled with a lot more paradox an internal tension than I think a lot of libertarian thought has faced up to. We're reading the Federalist Papers now in our reading group, and we read Federalist 51, where Madison says, um, we're not angels. For angels, you may not need government, but we're men. And I'm not saying government, therefore, is necessary. That's what he says, even, even if I, that's true. It's just like government is a reality. Government is not optional. It's like death and gravity. And Making it better rather than worse uh, or less bad is just like a difficult thing. And to do that, you have to be part of government almost. You have to participate. You have to assume a certain civic responsibility and be serious about lesser evil. And government by nature is violating liberty. That's part of its definition. It's a special player that gets to do things that if your neighbor tried would be criminal. And these are sort of paradoxes about how to effectuate any kind of liberalization in the world. Very deep paradoxes and difficulties. So just saying liberty, it's like a good overall kind of thing to elevate, but there's a lot of difficulties with that. So liberty is worth sacralizing. Um, again, individual dignity, you know, yeah, privacy, respect, all those good things, not messing with your neighbor's stuff. Yeah, these are necessarily simplistic, abstract terms. That's why I think of them in, on the same, in the same category as, as ideas like group cohesiveness or equality mm -hmm. because they're abstractions towards which we point ourselves. And then 
having done that, we need to figure out the messy business of living in the world yeah. and negotiating, as you say, the politics of life and everything else. Yes, you know. absolutely. I'd like to go back to some of what you said about quasi-religion and uh, the way that it, in a sense, opens up the complexity of our tradition and opens up much of the nuance or invites us to explore the nuance of the classical liberal tradition and libertarianism. And I'm wondering if, in a sense, it's a response to or a way of approaching some of the extremely rationalistic approaches to our tradition. As, as most people know, libertarianism has a tendency to search for axiomatic foundations to our systems of belief. And the best example is perhaps Rand and, and objectivists who appeal to Aristotelian logic and try to formulate a very rigid set of ontological and metaphysical assumptions. And they've worked out or Rand wrote a whole book on epistemology, objectivist epistemology, how we know things. And I'm wondering to what extent your thinking about quasi-religion helps us, in a sense, approach that and offer a critique of that approach to our tradition. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, I, I just don't think it really cashes out. It doesn't live up to its pretensions. What exists and what are these logical necessities and which ones you're going to observe and which things are you going to take into account? And and doesn't Rand also then turn to aesthetics? And does it, I mean, does she have the same kind of, you tell me, does she have the same kind of um, approach there? Yeah, good question. Rand, uh, in her in her fiction and in her writing on, on art, departs, I would say, from a lot of this uh, strict rationalism. This is what I would call a kind of reductive rationalism. She uses a term that I find really interesting, and it reminds me a little bit of what you're talking about um, with regards to quasi-religion, and that is she says um, that you can sense an artist's sense of life uh, when you when you observe their art or when you read their literature. Yeah. And so the art, in a sense, is a sum of a, a complexity of responses to the world or thinking about the world. And I take it that that she meant it's emotional uh, and intuitive, even though Rand hated this idea of intuition. Uh, but it seems to me that that didn't quite easily reduce to no, uh, to no. to rationalism. I mean, she might say this is some starting point, self-evident good. But, you know, how self-evident is it to people? And I think it's wonderful that she says that and affirms it, but is that affirmation logic? Is it like just some kind of fact she reads from the world or you know, does it live up to these kind of pretensions? And people have different notions about you know, what provides this rich sense of life, including tranquility as opposed to some kind of you know, glorious experience or sublime experience. She's making judgments. She's making aesthetic judgments about what she's going to make so important and then say that all of her policies and ideas like lead to that or promote that. So be more candid about it, be upfront about it and just just let your hair down and say I'm making a aesthetic calls here. I'm using, you know, logic, I'm using empiricism to 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 help along, to to firm up everything, but Still, it doesn't actually, it doesn't add up to uh, what it pretends to be, I would say. Right, right. The idea of Rand letting her hair down is perhaps one of the greatest um, greatest uh, ideas I've heard uh, this week. Um, you had uh, some ideas about how some of this thinking might implicate um, the way we access information, like the printing press or other avenues to to information. Yeah. Did you want to explore some of those ideas? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. There is a point, uh, I think, kind of an, a, a historical perspective relating to the printing press and the whole development of modernity, really, a complex society, which involves that vast array, uh, confusion of, of information and, and technology. Um, and, and basically what I'm, what, I want to say, and what I think McWhorter and Schellingberger are saying, is that these folks who want to 
get us all on the same script, the same prayer book. They want to get everyone back to the same higher things. They want conformity and uniformity in higher things. And this is like a totally anti-modern idea. This is like a return to 500 years ago. The printing press, you could say, really broke things wide open. That's in the 15th century. And then in the 16th century, we got different religions and reformation and religious wars and a bloodbath and everything else and different attitudes about what government is about or should do. And that's what the liberal arc is coming out of, kind of let's secure certain lower things like life and liberty uh, and life and property and contract and then let people pursue happiness, right? And that's very much the liberal arc because we've got to realize, just like we were saying before, we're in that open space, even if people stay away from the collectivist higher things, in that wide open non-collectivist space, non-collectivist quasi-religion, dif different ideas about what's worthy. You know, how much you know should you devote yourself to heavy metal or to hockey or to um, NASCAR? or whatever the case may be. I mean, and you know, family and going to church and this and your job and whatever, very different ideas. And the liberal civilization is about really allowing that to happen as long as people are not messing and encouraging the government not to mess too much, try to keep a lid on it. Um, so you'd get this vast, vast diversity in higher things, people's chimneys. Okay, there are many different kinds of chimneys. And, and what they're doing is they're like upset that people have different chimneys and they want to make everyone have like swear and salute their chimney and have the same chimney. You know what I mean? It's really anti-modern, the whole urge, the censorship urge, the propaganda urge, follow the science, etc. You know, CL is a way of coping with the unavoidable mess that modern society necessarily is. Yeah, your your analogy of the chimneys is a great one and I think it uh, it helps illustrate precisely what you're what you're talking about here in terms of the heterogeneous attempt to pursue the higher things. Do you think Dan that it becomes increasingly difficult to remain committed to something higher if we don't have a strong belief in the transcendent traditionally conceived as a benevolent and powerful force such as God? Absolutely. Um I think this is a great challenge. I guess I can say that I for myself feel that I manage to be virtuous or to pursue virtue, let's say, to pursue virtue without an actual conviction of God uh, and all of that in some organized religion like Christianity or one of the Christianities. But that doesn't mean everybody is so necessarily able. Um, and if people don't have the full kit that we talked about, and even the upbringing into the full kit, you know, so you get so kind of brought up into thinking that way that then to kind of pull out God's actual reality and existence would be so like, oh, I don't, I don't want to consider that seriously. That, you know, might be a good way to raise your children. I, I have to say, developing these quasi-religion ideas have given me some regrets about the way we raised our daughter, <laughs> um, who's not religious at all. So I do think it's hard. And it's a, this is a question that a lot of people have asked, including Tocqueville, including Hayek. This is what this is the question that Hayek ends the fatal conceit on. Like if people no longer have a, a conviction of God's reality and therefore the kinds of things that came out of Christianity, the good ones, the CL-ish ones along Seed and Top's lines, weaken because they no longer believe in God what will people turn to? And Hayek is deathly afraid that they will turn to what Tocqueville said they would turn to, which is a kind of collectivism and a reversion to the more instinctual mentalities and bents and follow the manifest signs and power structures around you and so on. So it's a really, really, I think it's a very difficult thing. 
Um, and I really would never want to try to talk somebody out of their theism. I'm not the least bit interested in that. Um, what do you think about that question? Yeah, I think that I think you expressed it quite well earlier in the discussion, and that is that even though one might be agnostic on the question of whether God exists, one can have a more abstract understanding of a stand-in for God, like joy or universal benevolence, that can guide you towards higher action or higher higher thinking. And um, in a sense, that is that's a a way to point you or direct your conscience rather than just maximizing utility, for example, right? Um, and uh, so I agree with you. Um, it may not be conceived of as as a god per se. I mean, there are religions. You could argue, I suppose, that there are religions that don't elevate a god in the same way. Something like Zen Buddhism doesn't elevate uh, a singular god in the same way. The Buddha, of course, um, is important in some Buddhist traditions, but Zen is a, a mode of existence, an attitude towards life that is supposed to model virtue and um, to practice uh, restraint with regards to attachment to worldly things and so on. But it still is oriented towards the higher good. And so it still contains an element of the transcendent, I think, even though it tends to be a more this-worldly approach, spiritual approach to mm -hmm. things in life. I suppose, you know, in one way, my pushing quasi-religion is trying to make a not necessarily religious society or population have more of the what we want from religion, and as it were, in terms of political attitudes and social attitudes generally. Yeah, and that's necessary if you're going to have a liberal heterogeneous society where people have completely different conceptions of what that transcendent good is. Yeah. So Dan, this has been a great conversation, wide ranging and really insightful. Thanks very much for coming on the Liberty Exchange podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Liberty Exchange, a project of libertarianism.org. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Fortier. Special thanks to Dan Klein, Pericles Niarchos, Grant Babcock, Paul Meany, and Allison Yaffe. If you liked this and want more, you can visit us online at libertarianism.org. <laughs>